Listeners, if you love conspiracy theories, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Conspiracy Theories to ensure you don't miss out on any of the world's craziest controversies and cover-ups. Thanks for listening to Conspiracy Theories, and we'll see you on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. In 1962, just months after Commander Alan Shepard became the first American to go to space, President John F. Kennedy made a bold proclamation. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. On July 20th, 1969, President Kennedy's promise came true. Neil Armstrong, a U.S. Navy test pilot born and raised in Ohio, became the first human being to set foot on the moon. He and Edwin Buzz Aldrin spent three days on the surface of the moon, then returned to Earth. The Apollo missions were a monumental achievement for humanity, the culmination of millennia of scientific advancement, a seemingly impossible task, almost too impossible. How were scientists able to guide a rocket 238,000 miles with less computing power than a pocket calculator? How were they able to accomplish this task when the Soviet Union had previously beat them in every step of the space race? 
And why is the flag rippling in the video footage of the moon landing if there's no gravity on the moon? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the Parcast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're talking about the moon landing. This week, we'll be following the official story of the space race, culminating in the Apollo 11 moon landing in July of 1969. Next week, we'll discuss the conflicting evidence that suggests the moon landing never actually happened. Almost any American who was alive in 1969 can tell you where they were when Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon. Half a billion people tuned in to watch the event live on television. In a decade full of conflict and tragedy, the moon landing was a celebration of human ingenuity and engineering. But it also signified the technological dominance of the United States over the Soviets during the hostility of the Cold War. This story really begins two decades before President Kennedy made his promise to put a man on the moon. World War II brought rapid advances in technology as nations around the world put every resource they had into strengthening their militaries. These technological advances included incredible breakthroughs in science and engineering. One scientist who rose to prominence during the war was Werner von Braun. As a child in Germany, he was fascinated with rocket technology. He watched in awe as German drivers used rocket-powered cars to break land speed records. In 1933, when von Braun was 21, Adolf Hitler's Nazi party seized control of the German government. The Nazis ignored the Treaty of Versailles and began rebuilding their military, which had been destroyed in the First World War. After von Braun earned his doctorate in 1934, he went to work directly for the German army. They funded his research at Peenemünde, their army rocket center located in northern Germany. The Nazis understood rocket technology's potential as a weapon, and von Braun was on the cutting edge. Working for the government, he officially joined the Nazi party in 1937, and in 1940, he became an officer of the SS, the same military unit that built and oversaw concentration camps. By this time, the Nazi government had already begun to segregate and imprison Germany's Jewish population, the first acts of what would become the Holocaust. Later in life, von Braun described his relationship with the Nazis as complex. 
He claimed that he had joined because if he refused, he would have been unable to continue his work on rocket technology and pursue his dreams of space travel. As World War II raged across Europe, von Braun worked diligently at the Nazi missile base with the help of the best and brightest prisoners of war plucked from the concentration camps he began production of the V-2 rocket. Hitler personally referred to the V-2 as a vengeance weapon. It was designed to launch missiles from northern Germany to London. This was the first time in history that long-range rockets were used as an effective weapon of war. It far surpassed the rocket technology of the Allied forces and the Soviet Union, who struggled to develop their own rocket-based weaponry. The Soviets were hindered because before the war had started, they had imprisoned one of their leading rocket scientists, a man named Sergei Korolov. In 1938, Korolov was accused of participating in counter-revolutionary activity. Like many of the supposed dissidents rounded up in Stalin's purges, the charges against Korolov were completely made up. Nevertheless, he was sentenced to hard labor in a Siberian gulag. During the war, Korolov and several other engineers had continued to work on developing rocket technology and aircraft from the comfort of the Gulag, but their efforts were poorly managed. The Soviets were outmatched by the Germans, and the Red Army had little air support as the Germans marched across Russia. In 1944, the Allied forces landed in France and were able to turn the tide on the Western Front. But even as the German armies retreated, von Braun's rockets struck fear into the hearts of the Allies. The German rockets rained death on London, killing almost 3,000 people, most of them civilians. It wasn't until April of 1945, in the final weeks of the war, that the Soviets finally captured the V-2 production factory in central Germany. And the Soviet army was horrified by the conditions they found the factory was entirely run on slave labor from Jewish, Roma, and Russian prisoners. Well, they apparently weren't too horrified. As soon as the Germans were cleared out, the Soviets decided to get the V-2 factory back up and running. They freed Sergei Korolev from the Gulag and put him in charge of operations. One month later, on May 8, 1945, the Nazis surrendered to the Allied forces. Von Braun and several of his scientists fled to the Western Front and surrendered directly to the American army. Why? They hoped the OSS, the wartime precursor to the CIA, might help them find safe haven in America. They were right. The OSS was afraid Von Braun's knowledge of rocket technology would fall into the Soviets' hands. Although the U.S. and Soviet Union had been allies during World War II, both countries knew their ideological differences would set them on a collision course after the war was over. The American government helped von Braun and his Nazi scientists flee Germany and resettle in New Mexico. Frequent listeners might recall this from our episodes on Operation Paperclip, the covert initiative that hid Nazis in America. Just a few weeks after Germany's surrender, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was the first time in history scientists had been able to harness the destructive power of the atom. But what truly made it unstoppable was that the United States only needed a single plane to drop one on Japan. Previous bombing campaigns required a massive fleet of aircraft. 
But what's even more efficient than carrying a nuclear weapon on an airplane? Mounting it onto a rocket. Von Braun and his team were put to work on improving the V-2 rocket. Meanwhile, over in the Soviet Union, Sergei Korolov managed to successfully replicate the V-2 design with a rocket they dubbed the R-1. But he soon realized it would be insufficient to meet the needs of the Soviet Army. The R-1, like the V-2, had a limited range. It was unable to carry a payload as heavy as an atomic bomb, and it only hit its target about half the time. So Korolov began designing his own rockets. In 1947, his next rocket, called the R-2, successfully doubled the range of the V-2. This was bad news for the Americans. Now that the war was over, the U.S. and Soviet Union were no longer playing nice. But by 1949, the Soviets had developed their own atomic bomb. Because of this, both the United States and the Soviet Union knew neither country would survive a direct military confrontation. Instead, their conflict played out in proxy wars all over the world. The Japanese Empire had previously invaded and occupied both China and Korea. When they were defeated in World War II, it created a power vacuum that both the Soviets and the Americans sought to fill. Each nation wanted an ally. As a result, the United States worked to install ostensibly democratic governments that would be friendly to their interests and the Soviet Union fomented communist revolutions that would be united against American influence. The Chinese Civil War raged from 1945 to 1950, until the Communist Party prevailed with the Soviet Union's help. The nationalist government, backed by American forces, retreated to Taiwan, which they still control to this day. Korea was next. The Soviet Union had invaded the Japanese-controlled Korea from the north during World War II to assist their American allies. After Japan's surrender, the Soviets continued to occupy the northern half of the peninsula while the Americans remained in the south. Two sovereign governments were established during the occupation, and both governments saw themselves as the sole legitimate ruler of the Korean peninsula. In 1950, the Communist North invaded the Republic of Korea in the South, launching the Korean War. It was a brutal conflict resulting in over one million deaths and ended in a stalemate that still endangers international relations today. But for both world superpowers, something even more devastating was looming on the horizon. Up next, we'll look at how far technology developed during the Cold War. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1952, the United States detonated the first hydrogen bomb, a nuclear weapon that was several orders of magnitude more powerful than the bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima during the war. By 1955, Russia had a hydrogen bomb of their own. In addition to being more powerful, these weapons were also much heavier than traditional atomic bombs. What that meant was they needed more powerful rockets. Both nations began to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles. These were massive rockets that would not only be able to lift a hydrogen bomb, but deliver it anywhere on Earth with pinpoint accuracy. Rocket scientist Sergei Korolov worked to develop the Soviet ICBM, but he saw the potential of the technology beyond weapons. He envisioned his rockets as a vessel that could help man reach the heavens. But his Soviet superiors weren't interested in space travel. They told him to keep his head down or it was back to the gulag. Meanwhile, former Nazi scientist Werner von Braun was building intermediate-range rockets for the United States Army. Von Braun grew impatient with this task. He, too, had hoped to develop larger rockets that would be capable of reaching space, but the Army wouldn't listen. So instead, he took his pitch directly to the American people. In 1955, Disney produced a TV special where Von Braun explained the potential of rocket technology for space exploration. The public loved it. Werner Von Braun became a household name. And Von Braun's pitch actually worked. The American government announced that they would launch a satellite into orbit within the next three years. It was announced as a scientific mission, and the satellite would collect data from space. But behind the scenes, the CIA understood that attaching a camera to a satellite would allow them to photograph anywhere on Earth. They worked to develop these spy satellites in a top-secret program separate from Von Braun's mission. The American announcement was just what Korolov needed. The Soviets were interested in showing their superiority over the Americans in any way, shape, or form. Korolov was easily able to convince his superiors that beating the Americans into space would be a great victory for their communist ideals. They gave him approval to begin the foundations of the Soviet space program. By 1956, after just one year of research, Von Braun believed that one of the Redstone rockets he had developed with the Army could launch a satellite into orbit. He presented his findings to the government. However, due to PR concerns about his Nazi past, the government didn't want Von Braun's name tied to their first satellite launch. Instead, they awarded the contract to the Navy. The Navy was not up to the task. The project floundered, The budget spiraled out of control, and construction ended up a year behind schedule. Where they failed, Korolov succeeded. In August of 1957, the Soviets successfully launched the R-7, the world's first true intercontinental ballistic missile. 
a rocket that was not only powerful enough to carry a nuclear warhead almost anywhere on the planet, but was also to break free from Earth's gravity and place a satellite into orbit. After the R-7's successful test launch, Soviet leadership told Korolov that the next launch would carry a satellite into space. His team only had a month and a half to build that satellite. Korolov personally oversaw the satellite's design. It would be spherical, about the size of a beach ball, and hollow except for a simple radio transponder that could communicate from space. Anything more complex would have been too heavy to lift or could have thrown off the delicate balance of the rocket. On October 4th, 1957, that small aluminum sphere, affectionately dubbed Sputnik by the Soviet scientists, was successfully launched into orbit. The space age had begun. All over the world, people were able to hear Sputnik's transmission above them. Although the sound was only a simple electronic beep at regular intervals, it scared the American people. If the Soviets could beat us into space, could they beat us in an all-out war? Just one month later, on November 3rd, 1957, the Russians sent a second satellite into space, this time with a passenger, a stray dog they named Laika, who became the first living creature in space. Laika lasted five hours before perishing from the heat inside the capsule. Humiliated by the Soviet's success, the Navy rushed to prepare a satellite for launch atop their Vanguard rocket. The satellite they designed was even smaller than Sputnik, weighing less than three pounds. Von Braun criticized their effort, declaring that given the chance, his team would be able to put a satellite into space in 60 days. He predicted that the Vanguard would never make it. He was right. On December 6, 1957, the world's press gathered for the Vanguard's first launch. The rocket was only able to lift four feet into the air before it fell over and exploded on the launch pad. As a final humiliation, the satellite on top was blown clear of the explosion and started transmitting from the ground. The press referred to it as Kaputnik. The Americans turned back to Von Braun. The Jupiter C rocket, part of the Redstone program he had developed with the Army, only needed slight modifications to be able to carry a satellite into space. Just one month later, in January of 1958, Von Braun succeeded, launching a satellite named Explorer 1 into orbit. Explorer 1 did far more than just send a simple radio transmission. It was the first satellite to actually collect scientific data from space. In July of 1958, President Eisenhower created NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Von Braun and his team of rocket scientists were transferred into the program. Their next goal was to put an American in space. Meanwhile, the Soviets continued to demonstrate their technological superiority. In September of 1959, their Luna 2 probe sent back close-up photographs of the moon's surface before its planned crash. The Soviets timed the mission to occur while Premier Nikita Khrushchev was touring the United States to add to the humiliation. The very next month, their Luna 3 probe became the first satellite to fully orbit the moon with a camera to photograph its far side. This was the first time humans had ever seen the dark side of the moon. 
As both countries pressed on, tension increased between the two superpowers. That same year, Fidel Castro's communist revolution seized full control of the Cuban government. This meant the Soviet Union had an ally just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, from which they could potentially stage a ground invasion of the United States. The pressure was really on, on the ground and in space. In August of 1960, two Russian dogs named Belka and Strelka became the first living creatures to orbit the Earth and return safely. Korolov had come one step closer to his goal of sending a man into space. In January of 1961, the Americans took a further step. They tested their Mercury capsule using a chimpanzee named Enos. The animal survived the trip, but von Braun decided the technology was still too dangerous to risk sending a human life into space. The Soviet Union didn't share the former Nazi officer's concern for human life. Even though there were still questions about whether or not Korolev's rocket could bring a person safely back from space, they went ahead with the mission anyway. Their human test subject would be a pilot named Yuri Gagarin. He was the ideal communist hero. He came from a humble background, born and raised in a small village near the Polish border. His father was a bricklayer and his mother was a milkmaid. The family worked on a collective farm. On April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. The journey was perilous. The retro rockets that were designed to slow his trajectory failed to detach from his capsule, sending him careening out of control. Gagarin was forced to eject, but still landed safely on Earth, completing his historic journey. Some theorists wonder if Gagarin was actually the first cosmonaut to orbit the Earth, or simply the first to come back alive. The Russians conducted their space program in complete secrecy, announcing missions only after their completion. With the Soviet government's iron-fisted control of the media, any previous failed launches would have been easy to cover up. Either way, the Soviets had gone to space and the Americans were close behind. One month after Gagarin, in May of 1961, Alan Shepard became the first American to reach space aboard the Mercury program spacecraft Freedom 7. His flight lasted a total of 15 minutes, with only six of those actually being in space. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. 20 days after Shepard's flight, President Kennedy announced before a joint session of Congress that America would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. This was an impossibly ambitious promise. A journey to the moon would take several days of spaceflight. They would need a probe that could successfully orbit the moon and a separate probe that would be able to detach and land on the moon's surface while carrying enough fuel to launch back into space and reunite with the orbiting probe. And after all of that, there would still be the 238,000-mile journey back to Earth. No rocket in existence had the combination of thrust and stability to carry the massive weight of all those probes without exploding. At this time, no American astronaut had even reached Earth's orbit. There was massive political pressure behind Kennedy's announcement. 
The United States had been humiliated by the success of the Soviet space program and had failed to stop the spread of communism around the globe. Landing a man on the moon was the only option left to prove American superiority to the Soviet Union. But just a few months later, the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union came as close as it ever would to all-out military confrontation. In October of 1962, during the height of the Cold War, the American military placed nuclear-capable ballistic missiles in Italy and Turkey. In response, the Soviet Union deployed nuclear missiles to Cuba. This was referred to as the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy ordered a naval blockade of Cuba and demanded the Soviets withdraw their weaponry. For a tense 13 days, the world stood on the brink of nuclear annihilation. Finally, an agreement was reached. The Soviets withdrew the missiles from Cuba in exchange for the Americans withdrawing their missiles from Turkey. For a moment, everything went back to normal. But the peace only lasted a year. On November 22, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald. Vice President Lyndon Johnson assumed the office of president. He vowed to follow through on President Kennedy's promises, including landing a man on the moon. This undertaking was named the Apollo Program. NASA took the name from the Greek god of the sun and light. Werner von Braun unveiled plans for the Saturn V rocket, which was four times the height and 100 times the weight of the rocket that had carried Alan Shepard into space. The Saturn V would be one of the largest machines ever built. It used five engines working together to achieve the gargantuan amounts of thrust necessary to lift the massive rocket free from Earth's gravity. Von Braun's scientists would also need to develop a guidance system accurate enough to reach the moon 238,000 miles away. No easy task. Especially since it wasn't until July of 1964 that an American probe even reached the moon's surface, a feat the Russians had accomplished five years earlier. While the conflict between the United States and Russia was playing out in space, it was also playing out in Vietnam. In March of 1965, the first U.S. Marines set foot on the ground in Da Nang, launching the U.S.'s formal involvement in the Vietnam War. That very same month, Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first man to walk in space, exiting his capsule hundreds of miles above the Earth's surface. He almost didn't survive. While in the vacuum of space, Leonov's spacesuit inflated. Without the pressure of Earth's atmosphere to keep it in check, the oxygen inside his suit expanded outward, rendering him immobile. Russian mission control watched in terror for 12 minutes as Leonov struggled to get himself back into the capsule. Finally, on Korolov's suggestion, Leonov manually vented the air from his own suit, allowing him to re-enter the capsule. The Soviet Union never revealed to the world just how close Leonov came to death. They kept their space program a closely guarded secret, while America's entire march toward the moon played out across public newsreels. 
Just two months after Leonov, in June of 1965, astronaut Edward White became the first American to complete a spacewalk. In December of 1965, the astronauts aboard NASA's Gemini 7 spent a full two weeks in Earth's orbit, setting a record that would stand for five years. America was finally catching up to Russia's early wins. While Korolev's accomplishments had often outpaced von Braun, he was never able to build a rocket on the scale of the Saturn V. He attempted to do so with a rocket called the N-1, but when he requested funding from the Soviet government, he was given only a fraction of what he needed. The N-1's design used 32 separate engines to achieve the thrust necessary for lunar flight. The rocket was tested four times, but all four launches ended in disaster. The program was canceled soon after. It looked like the Soviet space program's glory days were coming to an end. In January of 1966, Sergei Korolev died during a routine surgery. His heart gave out under the anesthetic. It had been weakened by the years he spent doing hard labor in the gulag. After his death, Soviet Premier Brezhnev finally announced Sergei Korolev's name to the world. He was given a full state funeral with a parade in Red Square. For 20 years, Korolev had remained completely anonymous while he pushed forward the realms of what man thought possible. Finally, the world knew his name. One month after his death, Russia achieved the first soft landing of a probe on the moon. All previous lunar probes had been designed to either orbit the moon or send back data before crashing into the moon's surface. But this one landed intact. America began to catch up. In March of 1966, the Gemini spacecraft, piloted by Neil Armstrong, docked with a separate satellite in space. The first time two spacecraft had successfully linked up within Earth's orbit. In June of 1966, the United States achieved their own soft landing on the moon with an unmanned probe. And in August of 1966, they achieved their first successful lunar orbit. But in January of 1967, disaster struck the American space program. The mission, designated AS-204, was supposed to be the first manned mission of the Apollo program. While on the launch pad, a small spark ignited the pure oxygen environment of the capsule. All three astronauts on board were killed in the fire. NASA's engineers had failed to anticipate the danger pure oxygen posed to the capsule's occupants. The mission would be renamed Apollo 1 as a commemoration of the fallen astronauts. In televised hearings, members of Congress tore into NASA's leadership for the disaster. It became clear that no more mistakes would be tolerated. The Apollo program itself was at stake. The American people were counting on NASA to fulfill President Kennedy's promise to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Congress made it very clear, failure was not an option. Coming up, we'll see how NASA responded to this pressure. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, back to the story. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. In November of 1967, Von Braun's work culminated in the launch of an unmanned Saturn V rocket designated Apollo 4. The rocket was the heaviest thing to ever leave Earth's surface, approximately the weight of a Navy battlecruiser. 450 NASA technicians were on hand to manage the launch. Because the rocket was so massive, the press was ordered to stay three and a half miles away for their own safety. Apollo 4 was a complete success. But in April of 1968, the second Saturn V launch, called Apollo 6, experienced problems when two engines malfunctioned. Nevertheless, NASA decided to press on with a manned Saturn V launch. The mission was named Apollo 8. In December of 1968, the three astronauts on board the Apollo 8 became the first humans to leave Earth's orbit. They journeyed around the moon, becoming the first humans to see its dark side with their own eyes and return safely to Earth. They were also the first humans to pass through the Van Allen radiation belts. These belts are fields of radioactive particles that surround the Earth, thousands of miles above its surface. The Apollo missions and the 24 astronauts who participated in them are the only humans in history to leave Earth's orbit and pass through these belts. Soviet scientists theorized that this radiation would be dangerous and that heavy lead shielding would be required to protect the astronauts. The lead shielding would, of course, make any spacecraft too heavy to fly. NASA dismissed claims that the Van Allen radiation would be dangerous to astronauts, pointing out that the missions only spent a few hours passing through them and that the radiation exposure was little more than that of a CT scan. So they kept pressing on. In March of 1969, Apollo 9 conducted a test launch of the lunar module into Earth's orbit, and in May of 1969, Apollo 10 orbited the moon with the lunar module, a dry run for the actual moon landing mission. The mission was a success. It was showtime. On July 16, 1969, one million people gathered in Cape Canaveral to watch the Apollo 11 launch in person. Another 25 million people around the country watched the launch live on television. This rocket, carrying Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, would be the first manned mission to land on the moon. After the rocket reached Earth's orbit, NASA Mission Control in Houston told the astronauts that they were go for TLI, that is, Translunar Injection, the final stage of the rocket launch. 
After the four-day journey to the moon, Apollo 11 entered the lunar orbit. Armstrong and Aldrin climbed into the Eagle, the capsule that would take them to the moon's surface, while Michael Collins remained in orbit on the rocket. As Collins circled the moon, he became the most isolated man in human history. Unable to make radio contact while on the dark side of the moon and thousands of miles away from the other members of his crew, he was all alone in a vast universe. For Armstrong and Aldrin, landing safely on the moon was not a guarantee. The moon's surface is uneven and pockmarked by craters. A year earlier, during a test of the landing module on Earth's surface, Armstrong had been forced to eject. According to the post-accident investigation, Armstrong would have died if he had chosen to eject even a half second later. Over the moon's surface, Armstrong struggled to find a suitable place to land the capsule. Armstrong burned dangerous amounts of fuel in lateral movement as he desperately sought a surface flat enough to support a landing. Back in Houston, Mission Control monitored his progress carefully. If they burned too much fuel, they would never be able to generate the lift necessary to leave the moon's surface. Every second counted. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Finally, the lunar capsule touched down in the Sea of Tranquility. This location on the moon had been chosen because it was relatively smooth compared to the rest of the moon's surface. Neil Armstrong opened the capsule. He descended the nine steps of the Eagle's ladder and took his first steps onto the moon, forever consecrating his place in the history books. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Armstrong flubbed his line. He meant to say, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Television cameras had been attached to the outside of the capsule so that the world could watch Neil Armstrong's historic first steps live. An estimated half a billion people tuned in from all over the world. That's one-sixth of the Earth's entire population at the time, the largest television audience ever at the time as well. The camera on Apollo 11 used slow scan technology, which was 30 years old at the time and incompatible with broadcast TV. The feed from that camera was broadcast to the Goldstone Observatory in the Mojave Desert. There, a conventional TV camera was pointed at a monitor, capturing the video from the moon's second hand. The networks complained to NASA about the poor video quality. After Apollo 11, later missions were broadcast from the moon with more up-to-date color television cameras. In addition to the live broadcast, Aldrin and Armstrong documented their historic journey in incredible detail, taking 5,771 photographs while on the moon's surface. Armstrong himself appears in only one of these photos, reflected in the face shield of Aldrin's helmet. Of course, it's impossible to discern whether it really was Armstrong and Aldrin's face behind those helmets. Armstrong and Aldrin planted an American flag on the moon's surface, celebrating the nation of their birth, whose tireless work and extensive resources made the journey possible. Skeptics have noted that the flag appears to wave in the footage, something that would be impossible on the moon due to the lack of wind in a vacuum. 
Officially, the bottom of the flag swings due to the force of Aldrin's movement, not due to wind. Another thing to note from the photographs, as Armstrong descended from the lunar module, every step he took left a perfect imprint of his boot in the ground. But skeptics have noted that the eagle itself left no such imprint, despite the massive amount of thrust guiding the capsule's soft landing. There are no craters under the lander in any of the photos taken on the moon's surface, nor is there any dust on the lander's feet. It almost looks as though the eagle was placed there. After the landing, their journey was only halfway over. They still had to make it back to Earth. President Nixon prepared a statement to the American public in case the unthinkable happened and the astronauts were left stranded on the moon. To quote, These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know there is no hope for their recovery, but they know there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. But this prepared statement was never shared with the public because the lunar module was able to successfully reunite with the rocket orbiting above the surface. The mission was accomplished. America gave the returning astronauts a hero's welcome. They were eventually sent around the world as goodwill ambassadors. At the end of the turbulent 60s, a decade mired in protests, assassinations, and escalating war, the moon landing gave humanity hope for a brighter future. In November of 1969, another mission, Apollo 12, returned to the moon with less fanfare. At the time, people called to complain to the networks that their I Love Lucy reruns were being interrupted by the news footage. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13, we're looking at it. In April of 1970, Apollo 13 launched, but never made it to the moon. After a breach in their craft's shell led to an oxygen leak, the three astronauts abandoned ship into the lunar module. With help from the engineers at Mission Control, the astronauts were able to create a makeshift air filter and return safely to Earth. In December of 1972, Apollo 17 marked the last mission to the moon. More missions were planned, as well as theoretical plans for a permanent base on the moon, but these were canceled as NASA's budget and priorities shifted toward developing the Skylab space station. By putting the first men on the moon, America was able to declare itself victors in the race to explore space, demonstrating technological superiority over their Soviet rivals in the midst of the Cold War. Technology has grown in leaps and bounds since the Apollo missions. It has become cheaper and more efficient, and computing power has become exponentially more powerful than the crude machines that guided the Apollo missions. But NASA hasn't sent another manned mission to the moon since Apollo 17, more than four decades ago. The question remains, why? If it's so easy to send astronauts into space, why don't we do it again? That brings us to our sole conspiracy theory in play. The moon landing never happened. The entire Apollo 11 mission was a hoax. Landing a man on the moon was incredibly difficult. Some would say impossible. Were the technological limitations too great? Is it possible to send humans through the radioactive Van Allen belts? And what do we make of the incongruencies in the photos and video footage from the moon landing? But on the other hand, 
Could the American government have successfully pulled off the greatest deception in human history? The moon landing not only cemented America's victory in the space race, it is one of the most important achievements in human history. If it were discovered to be a hoax, it would fundamentally shift our understanding of our place in the universe. Next week, we'll look at the evidence and search for the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by John Hume and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Thanks so much for listening to Conspiracy Theories. Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of thought-provoking episodes, stories you won't hear anywhere else, by following Conspiracy Theories free and only on Spotify.